from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 5. Creative Anachronism. Yeah, the Society of Creative Anachronism. I'm still a member, but less active than I was. If you know any local SCA people, you'll probably recognize their names in the game, along with the names of most of the employees here at Origin, close friends, whoever's walking outside in the hall. Richard Garriott, Lord British, A Fantasy Interview, April 23rd, 1992, by David Taylor. They told me to bring my demon painting because they wanted to show it to Steve Jackson, who happened to be the local baron at the time. When in medieval garb, I showed the painting to Steve. He looked at it and said he wanted it for the cover of the Space Gamer magazine. And so, surrounded by knights and ladies-in-waiting, I made my first professional sale to Steve Jackson Games for $250 and began my career. Dennis Lubay, interview with Dennis Lubay, the first artist hired at Steve Jackson Games 2015. As at Oklahoma University during summer camp, Richard's first weeks in Austin were a source of frustration. Because of his shy personality, it was difficult for him to fit into a new environment, and the distance from home made it challenging for him to work constructively on the new game. Although he had brought his trusty Apple II with him, programming languished. Sparse contact with Kenneth Arnold required the two to work separately, without knowing what the other was doing, and this often resulted in days of work ending up as unusable. In California, CPCC had put their staff to work, and within a few months, the first copies of Acalabeth World of Doom would start to arrive in shops, thanks to Remmer's network and personal connections, and the distributor, Softcell Computer Products Incorporated. Meanwhile, Richard was isolated and alone. Not by his own volition, but due to having difficulty breaking the ice with his new classmates. As often as he could, he went home to Houston and tried to carry on his work, but his morale slowly began to spiral downwards. For Christmas in 1979, Richard decided to temporarily put aside programming and do something to build relationships with his fellow students. He was just waiting for a good opportunity, which came in the form of a leaflet from the Society for Creative Anachronism, SCA, an association dedicated to the study and reenactment of medieval culture and life. Today, SCA is a fairly famous international association, thanks in part to its members who participated in activities over the years and, consequently, generated publicity. However, at the end of 1979, SCA was still relatively unknown and not widespread. Its origins date back to May 1st, 1966, when a costume tournament was held with participants competing in fencing fights at a party to celebrate Dr. Diana L. Paxson's degree in medieval studies. The event was very popular, and the enthusiastic guests proposed to organize a second gathering the following year. It became necessary to book a park to accommodate all the people who were expected to attend. In order to book the park, it was required to indicate the name of the organizing association on the form. Writer Marion Zimmer Bradley had been involved in the group's activities from the start and proposed the name Berkeley Society for Creative Anachronism. Her suggestion was immediately liked and accepted. Initially, BSCA's activities were limited to the University of Berkeley's California campus. Two years later, Bradley moved to New York, where she founded a chapter of the SCA called Kingdom of the East, with help from local enthusiasts. 
and held the association's first official tournament. At this point, for obvious reasons, BSCA's name was changed, dropping the first part, Berkeley, and ultimately became the Society for Creative Anachronism. Increasing its popularity via word of mouth and student associations, by the end of the 1970s, SCA had spread to many parts of the United States, including Austin. When Garriott received the leaflet, he considered, with hope and curiosity, the opportunity of doing something creative, original, and of meeting interesting people. He would not be disappointed. In 1979, the stellar kingdom of Ansteora of the SCA, as it would be called later, when it began to include the International Space Station in addition to much of Texas, expanded to include the territory of Austin, and a new barony was created on this occasion. According to the internal rules of the association, the leading role had to be earned through a fencing fight. Held on May 12, 1979, the first royal tournament of Ansteora was attended by about 30 fighters. The chronicles of the SCA recall the final clash that decided the fate of the competition as thus. final bout was between Count Jonathan, who'd stepped down as King of Attenveld a couple of months earlier, and a relatively new fighter from the Shadowlands, known as Otto the Merciless. Having won the competition, Count Jonathan Dilophison became the first King of Ansteora. Among the ranks of fighters was also a Viking Celtic warrior, Vargskol Halfblood, who stood out for his skills and was named Baron of Bryn Glad, as the SCA called Austin. Vargskoll had only recently joined the SCA via a backdoor. Always interested in board games and role-playing, he had become involved in the activities of the association in order to practice fencing and experience for himself the deeds of which the games he wanted to create spoke. His real name was Steve Jackson. By his own words, He had attended the University of Hudson and spent much of his time there playing war games and working on the student gazette, The Thresher, being the editor for two years. Despite his many interests and distractions, in 1974 he managed to graduate and enrolled in the law program at the University of Texas in Austin. But his vocation as a game designer finally got the better of him. Jackson threw in the towel just before the qualifying tests to practice as a lawyer and dedicated himself full-time to the creation of games. Nevertheless, his stay at university had important consequences, such as allowing him to come across the SCA, which he continued to attend even after he had decided to leave school. As Baron, and later as National Chronicler, he found himself at the center of the SCA in Austin, having many interesting encounters with people, including meeting a very promising young artist, Dennis LeBay. The novice artist was invited to an SCA activity and brought with him his demon painting, an elaborate drawing with a demon inside a pentacle. Recognizing the artist's skill at once, Jackson told the Bay that he would like the demon to be on the cover of his magazine, Space Gamer, and paid him $250, starting a working relationship that would last a long time. Lou Bay was hired as a typographical composer at Steve Jackson Games, the company that Jackson had just founded to publish his works independently. Although he would later occupy other roles, initially, Lubey was assigned to the laborious and tedious preparation of typographical sets for printing. Despite their good intentions, SJG was just an adventurous enterprise housed in the barn behind Jackson's house. However, over time it would grow, and Lubey would have the chance to show off his artistic talent and to grow professionally. As a typesetter, I was lousy, but soon Steve was able to support me as a full-time staff artist. I was glad to leave this electric typewriter's frenzied golf ball behind and work entirely on science fiction and fantasy art. 
At about the same time as Loubet and Jackson's fortunate encounter, Richard received SCA's flyer. It was the second half of the year, and incredibly positive rumors about Acalabeth sales were beginning to arrive from California. Garriott immediately went to Waterloo Park, the society's meeting point, and arrived just as a couple of fencers were practicing. These were David Watson, a 30-year-old craftsman, and his 20-year-old roommate, Greg Dykes. Richard stayed to watch a while, and then asked to participate. According to Watson, We met in Waterloo Park in Austin at an SCA fighter practice. He was a skinny kid with really fast reflexes who wanted to use his fencing training on a wider field. He and my pal Greg Dykes, Dupre, hit it off right away, and the three of us went to some SCA events together. I had a reliable car. More than a decade older than the others, Richard thought that Watson was an eccentric and very interesting personality. A skilled arbalist, Watson had chosen the name YOLO for himself in the SCA. That's I-O-L-O, by the way, in case you were thinking of the more modern acronym Y-O-L-O, which is typically pronounced the same. In spring of 1979, I was in the local park, Shoal Creek Park in Austin, and discovered local medievalists were having a spring recruiting fair. They had fencing, sword and shield combat, music, and a number of silly games. The people were friendly, and I had a loot. So we sat down and played some music. The group met in that park every Sunday afternoon, so I showed up the next Sunday for more. I was hooked. Within a few weeks, I was invited to the Big Crown Tournament, being held just outside town. I went out early. Help prepare the site, a lovely little meadow beside the local creek. Maybe Will Barker Creek, I don't remember. I had fun sending my membership, and I've been playing with SCA ever since. Passionate about history and crossbow shooting, that's what arbalist means, by the way, one who shoots crossbows. Years earlier, David Watson had begun to rediscover the art of making these medieval devices. When I was a teenager in the 1960s, my dad bought a Whammo Powermaster crossbow. Yes, the same company that made Frisbee flying discs. We lived on eight acres on the edge of town with lots of trees, so it was easy to find a safe place to shoot behind the house. Years later, when I was in graduate school studying history at University of Texas in Austin uh, around 1972, I bought a used Whammo Powermaster at a rummage sale. I took it home and shot in my backyard. The thing was a disaster. Bolts didn't fly straight, but fishtailed and whirligigged in flight. I knew that wasn't right. Being a history student, I went to the library to do some basic crossbow research. There I found The Crossbow, Medieval and Modern by Ralph Payne Galloway, published in 1907. It was a fat book full of wonderful arcane knowledge, so I invested 40 whole dollars and bought a copy. Having devoured the book cover to cover, I discovered what was wrong with my power master. Simple answer, somebody had removed the bow stave prod and reinstalled it half an inch off so one side was working harder than the other i corrected that and the bow shot just fine but the bow had a number of other design flaws i started making modifications each of which slightly improved performance until i finally accepted the fact that i had pushed that particular design as far as it would go however there was a set of plans for a proper medieval crossbow right there in the book i had a few tools and a neighbor had a complete wood shop so I bought some wood and talked my way into Patrick Tucker's shop. We made a working medieval crossbow that had his own set of problems. Yes, there were errors in Payne Galloway's pattern as well. So I set about fixing those flaws. When he arrived at the SCA, Yolo immediately made himself known for his incredible crossbows, which led him to change his job and become a professional craftsman, a job that, to date, he has yet to abandon. 
Everybody there thought my crossbow was great. So I made one for a friend, then another, and another. Things were getting out of hand. Next, I discovered a company from which I could mail order inexpensive aluminum alloy bow staves, prods, or lathes, instead of the built-up fiberglass things we've been using. The cheap aluminum prods made it possible for me to make and sell crossbows to friends and at medieval fairs. So around 1981, I quit my day job and started making crossbows for sale, mostly to other medieval nuts, and New World Arbalest was born. The business has never made much money, but with my wife's job as a tech writer for the Texas Highway Department, we made enough to get by. Eventually, we found suppliers for steel bows to augment sales of the cheaper aluminum ones, and I started offering stronger bows for hunting and longer-range target practice. So here we are, 38 years later, and I'm still making a few crossbows, by hand, as always. Still, the main interest of the three, Garriott, Watson, and Dykes, was fencing with rapiers. Tyvar Moondragon was a point of reference for aspiring fencers in the Austin area, also one of the most active members of the SCA, and the first dawn of the Order of the White Scarf of Ansteora, an organization dedicated to leading in combat, among other things. Within the White Scarf, Christian Richard Dupre was number four, Yolo Fitzowen, number nine, Gwenlian Gwalchgeif, Watson's future partner, number 14, and Shamino Sal Desil, then a cadet of Dupre, scarf number 28. And if you're not familiar with that name, Shamino, a rearrangement of Shimano, you may recall them as manufacturers of excellent bicycle parts, well, that was Richard Garriott. Beyond the necessary demonstrations of respect due to the ranks and functions performed by some members of the SCA, the environment of the Order of the White Scarf was very informal and amicable. There was no shortage of jokes in the friendly atmosphere in which Tyvar Moondragon, despite his leadership role, summarized everything with an effective wisecrack. They think I'm important. I think they've been screwed. In this environment, it is easy to imagine how the Dawn cards could be compiled. A set of typewritten sheets dedicated to the Dawns of the Order, accompanied by a photograph of the holder and a description very similar to that of a character card in role-playing games, with clearly useless characteristics evaluated on a scale from 1 to 4. Shamino himself was portrayed in one of the Dawn cards with his favorite phrase. And then he said, Wanna buy a duck? Dykes and Watson were interested in more than SCA's fencing, pranks, or social activities. Watson was already a skilled craftsman at the time, and the two came across the research of a British forensic pathologist named Bernard Knight. In Knight's article, Some Medical Legal Aspects of Stab Wounds, Dupre and Yolo discovered that the resistance of the human body to the penetration of blades was mainly due to the top layer of the skin, which is capable of withstanding between one to six pounds of force before tearing. Experimenting, the two came to the conclusion that a thin strip of leather soaked in water had a similar resistance to that of human skin. Based on this, Yolo and Dupre built a device they called the machine in order to have an instrument to measure their combat skills. It consisted of a small target with a strip of wet leather that was used to measure the force of each blow. The result was quite impressive. We had no way of calibrating passant shots, touches that seemed to slide off the victim without doing any damage. The draw cut machine seemed to be good for that, so I took my sharp rapier, really sharp, and tried to just skim a shot off the rawhide on the pipe. Oops, it actually went in. So I tried again. Oops, went in again. I discovered I could not make the blade slide off the target if the tip actually made contact no matter how flat the angle. Thus, we proved those shots where the recipient claimed the tip just skipped off their jacket. Sorry, fellow, that's in there. 
doesn't necessarily mean it would prove to be an incapacitating shot, but it's not nothing. According to David, Richard was a skilled fencer, even more so than his training buddies. Richard was a very good fencer, fast and accurate. He quickly rose to the top of the list and was awarded a white scarf. That made him part of the de facto group that ran SCA fencing in Texas. Practicing fencing wasn't only done for tournaments. Between Richard and Greg Dykes, a friendly and playful rivalry was immediately born, which led them to explore the limits of their abilities by inventing increasingly bizarre ways to fight. Richard and Dupre had a rivalry that eventually led to a set of duck feet and a duck bill to be worn while fencing. Fencing was also an excellent way of solemnly resolving, in an old-fashioned way, the playful contrasts that sometimes arose between members of the SCA. In particular, Richard had soon begun calling Greg with the nickname Super Duper, derived from mispronouncing Dyke's battle name, Dupre, within the SCA. Long taunted by his friend, Dupre, now annoyed, challenged Shamino to a duel, but lost, allowing Shamino to continue calling him by the insufferable nickname for another six months. Contrary to one might think, the three were inseparable, bound by a friendship that survived for over four decades, and any excuse was a good one for duels. Soon, Richard was completely absorbed by the SCA and found himself spending countless hours immersed in its imaginative medieval world, along with trusted Dupre and Yolo. Having to choose a different name for himself to use at SCA events rather than the formal-sounding Lord British that Remmers liked so much, he preferred the low-key moniker Shamino Sal Desil. This was the name he had initially signed the Computerland version of a Calabeth with, and that he had often used during role-playing sessions. As with a Calabeth, Richard had created the name Shamino inspired by an already existing name. In this case, as previously mentioned, the brand of his bike, Shimano. But with a typo. Shamino also met Vargskull Halfblood, Steve Jackson, and the two discovered that they had many common interests. Both had joined the SCA out of curiosity and found inspiration for the creation of their own games. Richard was more attracted to the design of worlds and stories, while Steve was more interested in inventing mechanics to create strategy and role-playing games. Both had been avid D&D players, but while Richard tried to bring some of the mechanics of Gygax and Arneson's game back to the computer... Steve was dissatisfied with their game system because of its numerous variety of die. Early models of 20-sided die, for example, tended to wear out quickly, and they eventually ended up with rounded corners, requiring multiple dice rolls to achieve a clear and unambiguous result. Steve didn't like any of this, and in his mind, the idea of creating a new game system began to take shape based only on the six-sided dice. This would become GURPS in 1986. In one of his many conversations with Jackson, Richard first came across Lubay's Demon artwork, which was the cover of Space Gamer magazine, issue 28, May-June, 1980. According to Lubay, Richard liked the demon painting when he saw it at Steve Jackson Games and bought the rights from Steve Jackson to use it as the cover to Akalabeth. Until then, Akalabeth had been printed in the so-called Castle Edition, and its cover art was simple, depicting a castle. However... The first print was now sold out, and Richard took the opportunity to propose that CPCC use Lubay's artwork for the second print of a Calabeth. Garriott often talked to Jackson about his computer projects. Steve was also interested in computers, but didn't have time to follow it seriously, since he already had enough to do for his magazine and his small board games company. Very often, the discussions between the two concerned topics that had little to do with SCA, as they were both happy to submit their games to the other members of the club for feedback. Richard actually went much further. After a few months in the SCA, he began to ask his fellow adventurers what phrases they wanted their virtual alter egos to use, and he wrote these down in his black notebook. 
he had already entertained the idea of including characters in his games which were created based on the images of SCA members that he was in close contact with. In doing so, Richard believed that he could create more realistic characters. Towards the end of the academic year, it became apparent that Acalabeth was about to become a commercial success and a generous source of income for its programmer because of the high percentage of royalties that had been reserved for Garriott. When the money started to come in, Richard's life changed quickly. The first thing he did was scrap the old Subaru that his brother Robert had left him and bought a new car that would replace it the following year, a Mitsubishi Starion. His look also changed radically. Richard started dressing in leather jackets, a habit that he would stick to for a long time. The most important effect of the unexpected and great success of his game, however, was that he suddenly found himself having to manage more money than his father would earn in a whole year at NASA. Richard's personality also underwent a transformation that his companions at the society didn't like very much. At one point, some of them decided to address this and told him that they felt success had gone to his head. Then came the ultimatum. Richard either had to change his behavior or be discharged. Initially, Richard did not want to accept any judgment from his friends. His first reaction was to feel outraged, having tried to share his newfound wealth with them. Richard could not immediately understand what was wrong with his behavior. Slowly, the truth in their words began to sink in, and Richard realized that he had allowed himself to get carried away. To make amends, he promised to show off less and to work harder. In reality, not everyone noticed changes in Richard's attitude. But one thing that did change was the birthday parties that he used to organize for himself which fell on Independence Day. According to David Watson, I never observed any jerk behavior on Richard's part, but I would say the really big birthday parties ramped down after Thunderdome. Meanwhile, in California, despite Acalabeth's sales going well, the Remmers started experiencing difficulties. CPCC had some great programmers under contract, like Bill Budge, who had scored several excellent titles, including the Trilogy of Games and the 3D Graphics System and Game Tool, which had sold very profitably to universities around the world. But accounts still didn't add up, and CPCC needed a new success to get its budget balanced. The pressure on Garriott to get to work on a new game, possibly a sequel to Acalabeth, began to grow. Progress on the new project had been very poor due to several factors. His distance from collaborator Ken Arnold in Houston, spending too much time at SCA events, and leisurely enjoying his sudden wealth. The ultimatum of his closest friends in Austin, pressure from CPCC, and a renewed determination to give a positive direction to his life helped him get back to work. But by nature, Richard was, in the words of his mother Helen, a teenage dreamer with a perfectionist streak. His parents, still thinking that writing games was not a legitimate career path, considered the success of Acalabeth as a bizarre anomaly and advised Richard to take advantage of the opportunity, as long as it lasted, after which he would have to find a real job. If Acalabeth had changed from a school experiment to a commercial game by chance, Richard's next title had to be designed to be sold to the public. Before there was a storyline, the prototype already had a name, Ultimatum. As with many other titles, Richard chose it by chance, and also because of the fact that it sounded very badass. Unfortunately, he later learned that Ultimatum was already registered as a trademark some years earlier for a war game set in a hypothetical clash between the United States and the Soviet Union. Without losing his enthusiasm, Richard shortened the name to Ultima and continued with his work. Creating a microcomputer game in the early 1980s was possible for anyone with enough imagination, determination, and good programming skill. No special hardware was required, and very often no license was needed. The total costs were therefore limited to the purchase of the platform on which the game would be developed. 
These circumstances allowed for the birth of numerous home software creators. Richard Garriott, Silas Warner, Bill Budge, John Freeman, and Jeff Johnson. These were all the vanguard of a multitude of software creators, both recreational and professional, who were trying their luck in the rapidly expanding consumer computing market. CPCC was pushing for a product in the shortest time possible, but this time Richard didn't want to take a risk with an amateur product and did everything to create something new. Completely rewriting the game would have taken too long, so Garriott decided to keep much of the code developed for Acalabeth, improve it, and reuse it within Ultima. Kenneth Arnold did his best to convince his colleague to abandon BASIC and move on to assembly, but Richard, who didn't know that language, was in a hurry to take action. The two came to an agreement. As Arnold tells it, one day at Computerland, I told Richard something like, you know what, Richard? With a little work, your program could become a game at least as good as the ones we're selling. You'd have to switch to assembly language to make it fast enough. Richard's reaction was immediate. Black assembly language? Too tedious. But I persisted. I told him I would write the parts that needed to be fast, and he could concentrate on the game logic, which didn't have to be as fast. With Acalabeth, Richard had pushed BASIC to its limits, exploiting much of the potential of AppleSoft. Since there was little room for improvement, he let Arnold take care of some sections in assembly, writing them more efficiently to save memory and increase the speed of the game. His experience was extremely helpful in writing a graphics engine that would have been impossible with BASIC, or at least too slow to be playable. Richard, meanwhile, started working on the plot and focused on creating the world. He had great ambitions for the creation of the world. Having filled his notebook during SCA meetings, this time he wanted to give his new game a different feel. Abandoning the random generation of the world, he wanted to create continents, rivers, cities, and points of interest, populating them with characters that had names and something to say. They now faced the problem of the Apple II's limited memory, into which they had to fit the program, game data, and the world that Richard wanted to draw personally. Arnold's part was much more efficient than anything Richard could devise in BASIC, but despite this, he couldn't draw pixel by pixel the world that Garriott had in mind. To be able to store so much data would require more than the entire memory of the Apple II, or the two floppy disks on which he managed to store the game. The high resolution and mixed mode of the Apple II was 280 by 192 pixels with up to six colors. The last 32 lines of the screen were reserved for four lines of text used for the dialog box and counters for life, gold, and food, as in a Calibeth. The upper part of the display was divided into tiles, 20 by 10, each 14 by 16 pixels. And from these, they began to prepare the Ultima Game World map which was composed of four continents. To save space, they cleverly recycled the same shapes several times, rotating and fitting them together so as to obtain four continents that were apparently different but essentially composed of the same elements. At this point, all that remained was to draw the tile set to compose the surface world geography and make sure that everything worked with Ken's components. Having to do it by hand, this process was anything but simple. The two drew each 14 by 16 tile on a sheet of squared paper. The next step was to translate these drawings into binary code, and then translate that resulting code into hexadecimal, which is ultimately what would be saved to disk. Finally, they had to start the game and check if the result was the desired one. Ken Arnold again. We're working with Richard on tile editing for Ultima 1 through the night in the Computerland store. We got so tired and delirious that we were laughing hysterically, saying, that looks awful about each other's tiles. The graphics resolution and other limitations were pretty extreme, but we managed to come up with a respectable set of tiles. It was mostly Richard's work. I just served as advisor, explaining why certain colors couldn't be adjacent to certain other colors because of the way the hardware worked. Since each tile had to be hand-drawn, calculated, and inserted into the game, 
Richard and Arnold did not create a very large tile set, limiting themselves to only 16 tiles for the overworld, the surface world, and city maps. The result of such hard work, however, was impressive and qualified Garriott's work as the first open-world commercial game with tessellated graphics. And Ken Arnold had played a key role in this, personally devising the innovative code that allowed the game to create such a detailed world, piece by piece. I think I probably wrote all of the assembly portions of Ultima 1, but I don't really remember. I wrote the tile graphics routines and the hyperjump routine. I remember inventing fixed point math for the hyperjump, not knowing it was a standard technique. The dungeon graphics remained in basic and were quite slow. That was Ken Arnold's modest description of his work. According to Richard Garriott, Ken wrote the first tile graphic copying routine and assembly for me. While his later work in Ultima Music is still great, it was that one subroutine that put Ultima on track. The dungeons of Ultima 1 borrowed the first-person view from Acalabeth, albeit with some improvements. The game no longer needed a lucky number, the seed for Acalabeth's pseudo-random generation, but Richard didn't want to deviate too much from the system he had designed for the dungeons in that game. Instead of asking the player for a lucky number, he used the name of the player's character as a seed for the generation of the dungeons, ensuring that once the character had entered their name, the dungeons were predetermined according to an internal algorithm. While still written in Applesoft Basic, the dungeon generation and display routine were enhanced, including an increased number of enemies and the ability to display longer, more complex corridors. When the game was completed, Garriott sent it to CPCC, which at last could begin to prepare it for mass production. Expectations were high. Acalabeth had come in second in Softalk's top 30 ranking of games, and the entire market for microcomputer software was warming up. The game that Garriott handed over to CPCC was in many ways as innovative a title as Acalabeth had been, but much better planned than his debut work. When players traveled over its surface world, Arnold's efficiently written code kicked in, speeding up the game's rendering, and therefore presenting them with a vast and detailed world in a way that had never been seen before, in which the player could explore the castle of the Lord British, various dungeons, and for the first time, cities. On the other hand, when the game moved into the dungeons, the execution was very slow, even slower than a Calabeth's. CPCC set all its forces in motion to get the game to market as quickly as possible, and in June 1981, Ultima made its official debut in stores across North America. It would soon face a fearsome competitor, but sales results were very encouraging and in line with CPCC's high expectations. Unfortunately for Al Remmer's company, this would be its last successful title. Shortly after the publication of Ultima, CPCC would close its doors for good. However, Richard Garriott's star would continue to rise in the video game industry, as Ultima demonstrated that Acalabeth's success was not the result of coincidence or luck, but something more. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash podcast or at Spam 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 Humbug to find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T-H-E-I-R-A dot I-T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-N-T-A-T-O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing Through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. 
I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.